If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's episode, we've got a talk from Charles Spencer on England's early Norman monarchs and the White Ship Disaster, a maritime tragedy from 1120 that threw England's royal line into disarray. Charles has written a new book on the subject called The White Ship and delivered this talk on it as part of our virtual lecture series. Actually, I want to start really by explaining this book and how it came to me. And I'm I'm not a medievalist. My last four books have been on the Stuarts. My last three have been on the English Civil War. But for me, history is about the story and the people and the drama. And what I tend to try and do is to tell the story of a a reign of a a monarch uh, through a flashpoint. And I don't think there's ever been a bigger flashpoint in anyone's reign uh, than the White Ship. And it came to me as a, a story for me to bring back to the public, as it were, uh, because I'm I'm of an age. I'm 56. I'm of an age where I was still taught a sort of fairly rigorous uh, and wide-ranging part of English history, really from the beginning all the way through. Uh, that's no longer the case because uh, all the English people joining in this uh, broadcast will know that you know most of history taught in England today is Hitler and Henry VIII, and uh, it's not no longer a compulsory subject. So, you know, school teachers have to dish out what people want. And I've always been intrigued by this story because of its drama and because of its huge effect on history. And what was it? I think five years ago, I was asked by a, a fellow historian, the wonderful Alison Weir, who also writes uh, historical fiction, of course. But I was asked by her to fill in because her keynote speaker at Leeds Castle had uh, dropped out. And could I please put together in a couple of hours, uh, a speech of half an hour on the Queens of England. 
well, I like a challenge and uh, managed to cobble something together. But I thought, well, look, I do know with this audience, they know rather a lot about history. And they will probably know more about Bodicea or Queen Victoria or Elizabeth I than I do. And so I thought, well, I'll throw in a, 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 a surprise package. So I put in a nearly queen, uh, Matilda, who will meet later on in this piece, uh, one of the very strong female characters in this true story, a tragedy. We really, I wanted to start with a, 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 a very strong character. And so I've gone for William the Conqueror. The beginning of my story of the white ship is 1066, really. I touch on the Viking ancestors and the uh, aggression and, and the Christianity that came to them and all of the forces that William the Conqueror, who was actually a very devout man, brought together uh, and which he exported to England when he conquered it in 1066. And he is the sort of fulcrum of the beginning of my tale. A very surprising man in many ways. Um, in an age when people of great power tended not to be, he was faithful to his wife. There's no record of any mistresses or illegitimate children. He had perhaps nine children. And uh, several of them are, are major characters in The White Ship. Uh, and none more so than his youngest son. But it, the story isn't just about personalities, it's about ships. I mean, I, I, I'm not an, a naval expert or a nautical expert, but I did really research quite a lot. You know, when you start on a new period, like I was doing in the, in the Middle Ages, I, actually I was surprised to find when I was at university that this period of history was my um, more successful one. But um, I, I really wanted to get to grips with all of this. So I spent uh, one year researching everything before I actually did the book research. So I did a general read up on the primary sources of the time to, to get the mood. And of course, one of the things I saw was the, the graphics of the Bayo tapestry. And what captured me about this was the similarity between the sort of Viking craft and the ships that were used for the invasion fleet in 1066, and also the white ship. I believe the white ship looked rather like this ship, which is the Mora, M-O-R-A. It was built secretly by William the Conqueror's wife as a gift to him to give him luck uh, for his invasion of England. And it was built actually in Barfleur, which is the key port in this tragedy uh, of the white ship. It's a ship that's made for invasion, not for comfort. And they, these ships were made what they call in a clinker fashion. And uh, what that really means is that each plank was laid one on top of the other and then sort of nailed together. And that makes for a speedy construction. And it's pretty good when everything's going okay. But it's not a very good uh, resisting fabric uh, when things go wrong, such as hitting a rock, for instance. So I've mentioned that William the Conqueror had quite a lot of children, and this was the oldest son, uh, Robert Curthose. Curthose was a mocking name for the young boy, which his father, William the Conqueror, made up for him. It basically meant short legs. And we know with Robert Curthose, he was a very powerfully built young man, but he was short in the limb department. And uh, basically, you've got this man who has a very difficult relationship with William the Conqueror. I think there was an element of the old stag and the young buck about things. And William had already acknowledged Robert Curthose as his successor as the Duke of Normandy before he set off on the invasion of England. He wanted to mark out his dynastic territory, as it were. 
but he didn't really like Robert Curthose very much. And they fell out very dramatically and ended up fighting each other. Um, it all came to a head over a, what sounds like a silly uh, brotherly argument. Robert Curthose was much older than his uh, younger brothers, William Rufus and Henry, uh, the future Henry I and the future William II. And he was downstairs in an inn with his uh, friends having an evening of uh, revelry when the younger brothers, who were upstairs on a sort of minstrel's gallery, uh, were playing rolling dice with some soldiers. And they thought it would be hugely amusing to empty a chamber pot, which was full, on their brother below. And unsurprisingly, Robert Curthose ran up to have a go at his brothers for behaving in this way. And then William the Conqueror appeared and sort of smoothed things over. And Curthos was appalled that his father hadn't done more to protect him and to stand up for him and to put these little brothers right. And he left his father's company very soon after that and, 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 and indulged in a civil war, really, for power of Normandy. Uh, and this included a, quite a serious um, skirmish in which William the Conqueror was knocked off his horse and hurt uh, by his son. And uh, at the time of William I's death, he really wasn't thinking of Robert Curthose as an heir to anywhere. But the, the Norman nobility were really always self-serving. They wanted to look after their estates, and they thought it would be much safer for them if Robert Curthose was made Duke of Normandy, the eldest son. He should be, if, unless everything, unless something was severely wrong with him, he should be the heir. So William the Conqueror on his deathbed, after he had been fatally wounded by the pommel of his saddle, striking his rather large tummy, um, he, he was persuaded to allow his son, Robert Curthose, to take over. I'm, I always like the sort of human drama and the, and the, the little details of these moments. And, and to me, one of the things I find most astonishing about this period is how these exceptionally powerful men, such as William the Conqueror, the great titan of uh, Anglo-French um, and, and sort of Northern Europe, uh, how, how incredibly they went from being alive and powerful to dead and in the way. You know, as soon as William the Conqueror was dead, the great men of his court rushed to look after their territories in, in the time of instability between reigns. And then at the same time, his servants just fell on his body and relieved it of all his jewellery and just treated him as this carcass. And it was a big carcass by this stage. Uh, William the Conqueror had got dramatically overweight. And this went into, uh, affected his funeral quite dramatically because there was a stone sarcophagus that had been carved for the rather svelte young William the Conqueror. And when it came to it at the funeral, the monks were trying to push him into it. And he was already overweight very bloated because he'd been uh, buried a, a fair time after his death. And I'm afraid, you know, his guts burst open and there's a sort of putrid stench. And, and in the chapel, people ran out because it was so disgusting. But I only say that not just because I'm trying to put you off your dinner, but also because it's so interesting how these people, when they died, became really nothing. This is a time of intense religion. It really took me some time to understand quite how superstitious people were and how Christianity was so important. And this figure is a man called Anselm. Um, he's really from the what we would consider the Italian Alps. 
And he was a man of meditation and purity and godliness. But he was of such a, a, a staggering intellect and he had a natural leadership. And he was recruited by uh, the Normans to come to England. And, you know, I, I, the king at this time was William Rufus. William the Conqueror did not leave England to Robert Curtos. He was sort of compelled to give Normandy to his eldest son. But he really liked William Rufus. He was, he was a, quite a rough, boisterous, fun, if you like that sort of thing, slightly oafish, uh, but very good soldier. Um, uh, and not very religious, but he, he, he hooked into his orbit of influence, Anselm, because William Rufus, as King of England, uh, was a very, very uh, dramatically anti-ecclesiastical king. He saw the church as this annoyingly rich presence in his lands. And when he could, he would leave an archbishopric or a bishopric empty, vacant, so that he could claim the, the revenue for himself. And it was only when he'd been castigated repeatedly by priests for his, his immoral ways. I mean, you know, he was deeply promiscuous, bisexual, with a rapacious appetite. And he used to travel around England with a court, which was completely out of control, raping and pillaging, and really not the epitome of Christian godliness. And at one stage, William Rufus got incredibly ill, and he was taken to the monks in Gloucester to be looked after. And they persuaded him that he was probably going to die. And he had a stomach condition that was going to see him off, and that he really ought to think about the next life. So he called in Anselm and was persuaded to ask him to become Archbishop of Canterbury. He had left Canterbury vacant for the money, as I mentioned. And Anselm reluctantly took on the role. But he said, look, in return, you know, I've got to be your spiritual counsellor and I want a real role here and I want the terrible things you've done to the church overturned. But William Rufus didn't feel he was in any position to bargain. He felt he was about to uh, be judged by God. And he agreed to an awful lot of this. And then he recovered. And when he did, that was a real, uh, uh, everything went wrong between Anselm and him. And he sent Anselm into exile. Uh, he even subjected this incredibly holy man to the, the final humiliation and Dover when he was going to go into exile. He made him empty all his luggage um, and all his carriage, uh, everything in his um, retinue had to be spilled out and looked at in Dover before he was allowed to leave. And he went into exile, but he remains an interesting figure into the next reign. Um, and we have here William Rufus's most famous act, I suppose, which is his death um, in, in August of 1100. Uh, here he is, again, tortured by religious worries and concerns and warnings. And he's approached on the morning of his death by a messenger from a bishop, Bishop Serlo of Gloucester, who says, look, you know, my monks are having nightmares that you are going to be hauled up to account for all these terrible things you've done, you know, sending Anselm into exile. The way you're treating the church is totally unforgivable, and you will be called to account by God. And I reckon William had got a conscience about this. We know he spent his last night racked with nightmares, so bad that he called in men to stand by him to protect him. Uh, because he was scared of the dark. But the next day, you know, he was quite a sort of boisterous figure. He put on this great show. He handed out the uh, freshly made 
arrows to his hunting party, and they went into the new forest. And nobody's really quite sure what happened. There are theories that younger brother Henry had something to do with the death of his brother, although contemporaries don't seem to have leveled that charge at him. It probably was just an accident. Hunting was incredibly dangerous. Um, the elder, so, so William Rufus's elder brother, the one between him and Robert Curtos, had died in a hunting accident as a young man. It was called Richard. And then one of William Rufus's illegitimate sons, who was, who, who, who was adored by his father, was also killed in a hunting accident the same year as William Rufus. Anyway, William took this arrow in the chest and fell without making any sound at all onto his knees and then toppled forward and drove the arrows straight through him and died instantly. And that mattered. You know, they believed at this time that a good Christian should have time to repent of his sins. But William Rufus didn't have that. He was killed outright. And people saw that as the final revenge of God for this terrible ruler. And the man who benefited from this is the central figure in the white ship. And he is King Henry I. And I, I would say that Henry I is one of the great kings of England. I'm ashamed I didn't know an enormous amount about him. But here he is. He's a young man. He has had a, a very, very obscure life. He was the youngest of the four sons of William the Conqueror. There's a strong possibility, if we look at his education, that he was cut out to go into the church. His three elder brothers were all lined up to be called the Count of wherever. He didn't get that title. He was brought up by a bishop, Bishop of Salisbury. He was considered hugely intellectual by his family uh, because he could read. Couldn't write, but he could read. That's more than the others could do. Uh, William the Conqueror never mastered English. found it very complicated, and he was very busy uh, suppressing the English. Never got around to that. So we've got this rather strange man. His family underestimated him. He had a passion for hunting. All the family had that. And that's what people thought of him. He was this sort of nerdy intellectual who liked to be in the forest and racing with his own pack of hounds. It's rather extraordinary to them that he wasn't more sophisticated. And at the time of William the Conqueror's death, one brother got England, another got Normandy, and Henry got a lot of silver, but no land. And he said to his father, what am I meant to do? And his father, supposed, you know, if you read the Chronicles, said to him, I have every confidence that you're going to uh, outsmart both your brothers and end up greater than both of them. And he was in the hunting party in the New Forest where his brother died, and he raced to Winchester, left his brother to stiffen in death on the floor, and raced ahead with his henchmen, seized the treasure uh, that was based, the Royal Treasury in Winchester, and then went on to uh, London and was christened. Uh, sorry, well, he was, <laughs> he was christened, we don't know where. He was crowned um, in 1100, just a couple of days after his brother's death uh, in Westminster Abbey. And it's quite strange, you know, I've, I've already shared with you my sort of uh, astonishment of how people were, were treated when they were dead. I mean, William Rufus was just chucked in a cart and taken, they said, like a sort of wild boar that had been shot uh, to his rather mediocre funeral. Nothing grand about that. Um, but at the same time, there was this veneration. Once you had been anointed in coronation, you were treated as a separate being to normal people. Um, it was seen as a religious experience that transposed you from a human frailty into uh, God's representative in the kingdom hugely powerful to have that 
behind you. And Henry was this extraordinary figure because he realized straight away that he had duties to perform to consolidate his power. And he took on the main barons in England. There's a sort of terrible family who reappear in my tale, uh, the worst of which, they were a band of brothers who, who were just evil. And the worst of them was a man called Robert de Bellem. And he knew these stories about Henry, this very strange person who liked hunting too much in a sort of you know, humble role and who read, who could read. And he thought he could push him around. And he started, he continued to build castles, which was totally against the law. You had to have the king's permission to do things like that. And Henry took him on. And he took on his, his own brother, Robert Curthose, appeared within a year to try and uh, take over the, the crown of England. Having been passed over it once when William Rufus took it, he wasn't going to have another brother take it on unchallenged. But, you know, Henry was a wily operator. He got Anselm onto his side. That was hugely important to have this great man of God say, look, he's been crowned and we have to support him. And he saved Henry from having his rules snuffed out very early on. And I, I just, I, I'm full of admiration for Henry and the way he set about things. He knew that one of his prime duties was to have children. And this is a rather bizarre um, contemporary representation of the king. And to the uh, left, you'll see the sort of main figure in my story, and that is William the Eighthling. Now, that is uh, a strange Anglo-Saxon title, which is, essentially means future king, sort of similar to Prince of Wales, but not as, not as rigid. Um, and, and then the daughter and his wife, and he chose as his wife very carefully uh, Matilda, a princess of Scotland, who had in her blood the ancient blood of the Saxons, going back to Alfred and further back to Serdic, so in the sixth century. So a real dyed-in-the-wool Englishwoman and or Anglo-Saxon. Henry was doing this on purpose. He wanted to settle England. His father, William the Conqueror, had done it through bloodshed. William Rufus had ridden roughshod all over the place and ended up with this extraordinary um, figure of, 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 of Henry married to uh, Matilda of Scotland and having a daughter, Matilda, and this son, William Aithling. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And Henry I is by far the most fertile monarch that England's ever had. Um, I think Charles II had roughly a dozen children, but Henry I had two dozen. These are the only two who were born of the marital bed. The rest were from a series of mistresses uh, dotted mainly around England and Normandy. And those are the 24 we know. So, you know, anyway, this was the key. I actually believe there's no, there's no, nobody's can prove this, but I believe that Henry took a view that he'd had so much trouble with his brothers 
it was a cockpit in their house of fighting each other and imprisoning one another and raising armies against one another that he wanted probably in my view just to, when he had his one legitimate heir just to stick with him because it would be less trouble for the future generations this is a tighter look at william the son of henry and what do we know about him well you know the chroniclers are, are sort of fairly mixed on him they talk about his huge glamour they mention how doting his father was on him which was unusual you know most royal children didn't see that much of their parents and were, were just well they were useful pawns for brokering dynastic marriages etc but we know for sure that henry was very very loving towards this young boy and he took him with him they went on uh, he, he joined henry in his wars against france he went on diplomatic missions with him um, and we know also he was sort of golden-haired, and I think he was considered very beautiful. But it's very hard to judge people's looks at this time, because frankly, every chronicler, if they were writing about somebody royal or aristocratic, uh, described them as the most handsome or beautiful person that ever walked on the earth. It's sort of convention at the time. But he must have been striking, because people really noticed him. And he had the charisma of a royal heir. The... Um, the, 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 the magical charm. He had a lot of hangers-on who wanted to be with him and be part of him. And um, yeah, at the same time, some of the chroniclers weren't sure about him at all. You know, he was bred to bring England and Normandy together and to settle England. But he is quoted as saying that as soon as he was king, uh, he was going to make the Anglo-Saxons work like oxen in the field. He obviously saw them as a sort of untermensch. And um, obviously, the chroniclers who had uh, an English sensibility found him quite distasteful. Anyway, we are at a time when there were serious uh, battles going on. And one of the reasons that that young boy we just saw became incredibly important was because at the Battle of Tonchebray in 1106, Henry had effectively invaded his brother Robert Curthose's Norman dukedom and had built up an enormous number of allies. Uh, England was very, very rich. Uh, Robert Curthose was hopeless with money, was constantly broke, couldn't afford mercenaries, and even people who quite liked him or felt they should be loyal to him. And more and more uh, people drifted over to Henry I, and they sorted things out on this battlefield in 1106. It's an extraordinary time, really, because um, I think Robert Curtis could have walked away and been allowed to have quite a nice life. And I, I suspect he knew that he might well lose. But actually, the one thing Robert Curtis was good at was fighting. He had made his reputation on the First Crusade as one of the most dramatic crusader warriors. But anyway, everything went wrong for Robert Curtis at the Battle of Tonchebray. And he was taken into captivity, where he remained for an immensely long time. He lived an astonishingly long life into his 80s, and he stayed there forever. Uh, there was a convention at this time that you did not uh, execute your uh, close relatives or torture them uh, or mutilate them. There's a lot of mutilation at this time. Some standard punishments for disloyalty involved the losing of eyeballs and genitals and all that sort of thing. But Robert Curthose went off into a very comfortable imprisonment. And actually, he seemed to quite enjoy it. You know, we see, we find him when he's moved on. He started in Devizes Castle as a prisoner there. 
But after a decade or two, he's moved on to Pembroke in Wales. He's very happy. He learns Welsh. Uh, he writes a poem about an oak tree, which we still have. And I think actually being sort of parked outside of the brutality of Anglo-Norman fighting, uh, ironically suited him quite well. I mentioned Matilda right at the beginning of the piece. This is the sister of William the Eighthling and the only legitimate daughter of Henry I. And Henry uh, managed to pull off a spectacular marriage for her. And she married a man who, who was the emperor of um, effectively Germany. Uh, they weren't called Holy Roman Emperor at this stage, but that's pretty much what he was. That was a later terminology. Um, so, yes, he controlled from Belgium to Vienna and a, a huge chunk of Central Europe. So for Henry, who had really seized the throne out of nothing, to have his daughter recognized as the really the most powerful woman in Central Europe was a huge coup. And this is a picture of the wedding feast of the very young Matilda. She's a little girl. Um, being married to uh, Emperor Henry, uh, who was very much a man. And uh, people said that it was the most spectacular wedding. The, the guest list was uh, included every prince and archbishop who could get there. And the, the, the word on this wedding was that nobody had ever, not only had nobody ever seen anything like it or experienced anything like it, they'd never heard of it or read of it. It really was quite a moment. And it was a huge feather in... in um, Henry I's cap, and also gave him a useful ally against his main enemy, the French. People go in and out of fashion as kings and queens of England, depending on how I think society at the time views them. The Victorians were appalled by Henry I. I think that's part of the reason he dropped off the radar for quite a long time. He was vicious and ruthless and all of these things that you had to be, in my view, to be a successful early 12th century ruler. And this is a scene of him having uh, a load of uh, robbers strung up. He was even tougher if you were uh, somebody who faked his coins. He, he was very keen on finances. This is the man, after all, who set up the Exchequer, which is still the Treasury of England today. And he was very particular about people respecting his money. In fact, he saw any uh, debasement of the coinage as a, as a form of treason. And he warned the people who had licenses. There are about 50 or 60 mints around England that had licenses, which they bought from him at huge cost to make money. He, he warned them, look, just don't, I, I need, you know, my coins to be as pure as any. And England had actually got a tradition of having the best coins in Europe uh, for, for quite some time. And he found out that quite a lot of these minters of coins had been playing around with the composition. So he had them asked to uh, Windsor one Easter. And there they were. They all had their, the ones who had transgressed had their right hands and their genitals cut off. Um, but people said, you know, that on the upside, we've got to look for the upside after that, um, that a, a woman, a young girl with gold in her purse could walk from one end of the kingdom to the other without being accosted by burglars. So, yeah, he was ruthless. Uh, and, and when I, I so I, I have to counter my admiration for his strength with obviously horror at the mutilation, etc. And this is the most difficult story about Henry I, is that he really was one for rules. 
And the rules were very strict at this time about what people did in certain situations. Um, and one of the things he used to do with his, his huge number of illegitimate children was marry them off to people across Europe uh, who could be useful to him. And he made one of his daughters, uh, Joanna, she had to marry a count in France. And then she was persuaded by her father to hand over her two daughters to be hostages to a neighboring count to bring about peace in that area. And the neighboring count had to hand over his son as a hostage. Well, for whatever reason, Henry's daughter lost her patience with her hostage and she had the little boy blinded. And the man who had had his son blinded came to the king and he said, look, you know, the rules are clear. I'm now allowed to do the same to the hostages in my care. And Henry agreed that his two little granddaughters should be blinded. And because they were part of the wrongful party in this, the, he gave permission to for their noses to be cut off. I mean, it is unimaginable, this sort of animalistic viciousness. And I'm not defending it at all. I find it unforgivable. But I think if we try and look into Henry's mind, he was thinking, well, I have set the rules and I have to stick by them. Because, of course, governance relied a lot at this time on fear and example. I mentioned that his big enemy at this time was uh, France. And this is the rather wonderful uh, Louis VI, um, as, as you will be unsurprised to know. He was known as Louis the Fat. This was not considered a great insult. It was a sort of celebration of his um, roundness, I suppose. Anyway, Louis was a, a near contemporary of Henry's, and they spent an enormous amount of their reigns fighting each other. Uh, Normandy had always been a slightly odd fixture in the uh, French constellation. So the, the kings of France controlled a tiny part of what we think of as France. It was really the Ile de France. And then there was a series of counties and dukedoms around them that they tried to, well, they, they claimed, but they didn't really control some of them. And um, so a lot of tension. And, and Louis would uh, fight Henry uh, wherever he could find a reason because he want, he, it was a terrible threat. It's one thing for a French king to have aggressive little Normandy on your doorstep. But to have an Anglo-Norman uh, double realm uh, was, was really a, a, an existential threat to the French. So this is the man who is clearly, by some distance, Henry's greatest enemy. And eventually, uh, they come to uh, battle uh, in, in 1119, huge battle of huge consequence. Henry fights on foot with his three sons and uh, they at Bremul. And they end up having this uh, decisive battle. And it's such a huge English victory that Henry gets what he's really wanted all along. He spent 20 years nearly on the throne at this stage with the one real dynastic aim is to get his son, William the Eighthling, uh, recognized not only as the future King of England, but the future Duke of Normandy. And this he achieves. Um, and it's this battle that does it. Uh, the French king tries diplomatic moves, tries to get the Pope to side against Henry after this, but this is the key moment in the reign. Uh, and Louis has to recognize William the Eighthling as the future, the future leader of the Anglo-Norman realm that he hates so much. And this is the great rival to William the Eighthling, another William, another grandson of the conqueror. This is William Clito. William Clito, Clito is exactly the same as Aethling. It means the future duke. It's the heir, the male heir. 
And William Clito is a fantastic figure of history, a nearly man. And he attracted a, 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 an astonishing amount of support from the French, from the Angevins, uh, from Maine, from anyone who hated Henry I, frankly. This was the lightning rod. This was the contender that they could rally around and hopefully see off uh, the, 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 the dreadful Henry and his dynasty. But after the defeat at Bremule, uh, William Cleto has to admit that it's over. And he asks for his father's freedom, Robert Curto is sitting in his Welsh castle. And he says, look, if you give us both our freedom, we'll, we'll go south of the Alps and we'll never trouble you again. But uh, Henry doesn't have to agree to this anymore because the, 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 the defeat he's inflicted on the French is so complete that William Cleto seems to have been knocked into touch. And the assumption is he'll never be heard of again. We have to touch on what the sea meant to the early 12th century mind. And it was a place of extraordinary beauty, if you read the poetry of the time, but also an astonishing fear. Look at the strange forms that people thought were under the, the, the waves. There was obviously no idea what went on uh, beneath the sea. So we have the idea of mermaids and extraordinary animals, uh, sea wolves, sea elephants, even sea goats you'll see on charts. Uh, it was a place of unremitting fear and danger. And yes, you, had, you could have a good captain who knew how to avoid rocks. You could have experienced sailors who could judge the weather a little bit. But it was still a place where an awful lot of shipwrecks happened. And people felt very, very scared out there. Um, and this explains, you know, that, that you, you, you really wanted God on your side when you went on a voyage. And uh, no, I, I think we have to start with the fact that really almost nobody could swim. Um, there are a few people who lived in fishing ports who might be able to swim to retrieve a snagged net or something. But swimming wasn't a pastime. It was um, the water was a place of fear. It was somewhere you tolerated if you had to make a journey across the water, but you were scared throughout probably. And this, now we are getting to the white ship. And so after these great campaigns, after four years, this time fighting against Louis the Fat, after the astonishing uh, victory that he had that finally established his son uh, on the throne and, and the Duke to Normandy, uh, Henry arrives at Barfleur, the same harbour where his father's great ship was made for the invasion. And as he arrives in Barfleur to return to England in triumph, he was looking forward to a 10 or 12 hour voyage up to Southampton. A man comes forward and he says, you know, it was my father's great honor to captain the Mora when England was invaded in 1066. And it would be my equal honor if I could take you, the king, back to England in your moment of greatest triumph. And Henry I is sort of not one for flattery. And he had his own arrangements. He said, look, I'm going to carry on in my own ship. But um, tell me about yours. And so the captain boasted about the white ship. It was obviously white or whitened. I think it must have been lime washed. And because um, the captain refers to it in this well-reported speech as this great vessel and its whiteness is, is referred to. And it had a lot of rowers, uh, 50 oarsmen. So it was fast. It had a beautiful sail. And Henry goes, look, you know, I'm, I'm obviously made my own arrangements, but it'd be fun for my son and my other children and my leading courtiers and generals to go on the white ship. So, yes, take them. 
And it was really uh, a, a tragedy of, of such humdrum proportions, the actual accident. The crew was ecstatic about the prince being on their boat. They were so overexcited. And the prince was very flattered by their excitement. He ordered on huge amounts of wine, which he and his comrades drank to excess. They then shared it with the crew and the helmsman and the marines who were on board. And late that night, they decided that even though the king had had a few hours head start across the channel, that they should set out and try and beat him. And I mentioned how important it was to have God on your side at this time if you were undertaking a voyage. When the monks appeared to bless this great ship, which was normal at this time, uh, the sort of drunken Hooray Henrys on board shouted and chased them away. And people look back on that as a very key moment. And then everyone started shouting, come on, we've got to beat the king, beat the king. And I think the miscalculation was the helmsman had no idea how fast they were going. The 50 rowers were bending their back. And then the crucial mistake was that somebody dropped the sails too quickly. And the ship runs into the Keyberf rock, which is still there off the coast of Barfleur. And although it's a still night, there's no great storm. They hit it with such a force uh, that the drunken sailors think, oh, they think they can just pull away from the rock. But they can't. It's lodged. And when they do manage to get it off the rock, it breaks in two and into the water cascade all of these fine aristocrats and generals and courtiers, uh, 18 women of countess rank and above. And the one person who is sped away in the little lifeboat is William the Eighthling. And he's been bundled in by his bodyguards. And they're making for the shore when he hears one of his half-sisters calling for help and insulting his manhood, you know, for leaving her in this predicament where she's surely going to die. And he orders the ship, this little boat, I mean, to go back to the ship. And as it tries to cross the water to go and rescue his half-sister, uh, a lot of people scrambling around in the bottom of the water. They, 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 they grab hold of the boat and they pile on and they take the boat down. And how do we know this? Well, we know this because there's one eyewitness, the one man who survived the disaster of the white ship was a butcher called Barreau from Rouen, who had pursued his wealthy creditors onto the ship to get some bills settled. And he was fortunate. He was dressed for the occasion because whereas the others were in their finest garments with perhaps some animal um, <clears throat> furs around them, he had animal skin as a butcher is using the offcuts of his trade, goat skin and wool. And uh, even though he was wet, once he scrambled onto a piece of mast, he managed to stay warm enough to survive until he was rescued by fishermen in the morning. And the second half of my book is really about the consequences of this extraordinary disaster, a disaster so terrible that it left England without an heir. You know, nobody wanted to tell Henry about what had happened because they were so frightened of him. And eventually a little boy went in and told him. And he fell screaming to the floor, the king. And he had to be helped out of the room. He remarried very quickly, but he never came to terms with his loss. They say he never smiled again, which of course is an exaggeration, but it gives you an idea of the calamity this was. And he spent the remaining 15 years of his life until he died from eating too many lampreys, too many eel-like objects, trying to fertilize his second wife, but with no hope 
of an heir. It didn't happen. And so the consequence of this was total anarchy and disaster. That was Charles Spencer. His book, The White Ship, is on sale now, published by HarperCollins. You can find out more about upcoming talks in our virtual lecture series at historyextra.com forward slash events. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for an Everything You Wanted to Know episode on Ancient Persia. (laughs) 